As we desire God to speak to us today, uh, we are going to allow that to occur first here in a creative way. As many of you recall, back in August, we presented uh, Godspell, a production put on by our church and uh, participated in by many and viewed by many. And uh, one part of Godspell was their presentation of the story of the Good Samaritan. So without further ado, the scripture reading presented today from our Godspell group. Hello? It's for you. It's your father. He says you just won tickets to the Good Samaritan Show. Yay! <laughs> there once was a man on his way to Jerusalem from Jericho when he fell in amongst robbers who beat him, <laughs> stripped him, and left him for half dead. It happened that there was a priest who came by, took one look at him and went right on by. So too did a judge, but she passed him by right on the other side, just right on by. It all happened that a good Samaritan came and when he saw him, he was so moved that he went to him and he bandaged him, treating his wounds with oil and wine. And then he placed him on his own beast, took him to the inn, and cared for him there. The next morning, he produced two pieces of silver and gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him here, and if you need more, I will repay you on your way back. Now you have learned that they were told... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you this. Love, love, love your neighbor. And pray for your persecutors. Yes, I do. Only so can you be called the children of your heavenly father. For if you greet only those who greet you, what reward can you expect? And if you love only those who love you, what's so extraordinary in that? No. Your goodness must know no bounds, as our Heavenly Father's goodness knows no limits. Very good. But be sure not to make a show of your goodness or your religion before man. If you do so... No, you'll have no reward in heaven. When you do some act of charity, do not announce it with a flourish of trumpets as the heathens do in the streets and the synagogues. I tell you this, they do this only to gain the admiration of men. 
When you do some act of charity, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. As many of you recall, that was a wonderful production put on by many in the life of our church. And I invite you today to have your uh, insert in the bulletin out to take notes and to follow along on this one. This morning we celebrate this foundational truth at the core of this message, and that is that everyone, everyone can join Jesus on his mission by seeing their story and how their story can contribute to God's big story. The key question today is this, what will your story be? And how will your story be used to contribute to God's story? At the background of the parable of the Good Samaritan is a question that the expert in the law had, he had in, at, that he asked, intended to question and, and um, sort of put Jesus on trial. Who is my neighbor, he asked. The question ended up actually testing the expert in the law more than it did Jesus. For an answer to that question, Jesus told the story we now know as the Good Samaritan. There, Jesus points to a good Samaritan being the one who is the hero of the story, which is a great reversal of what would have been anticipated. Jesus would ask the question, which of the three, a priest, a Levite, or a Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man in need? It is a clever question because it puts the reader into a position of wanting to be part of the right ending of the story. In other words... Do you want your story to end like the priests or the Levites? I know I don't. Rather, I want to be a person who is not so much in hurry or so full of myself as to be a neighbor to someone in my path. I want to be open and available to those in need. And that's been the goal of this sermon series. In the end of the parable, Jesus would say, go and do likewise. And what we've been encouraging you to do is to go. And do likewise. Join Jesus on his mission. Serve to build relationships in order to share the gospel and learn how to be a good neighbor again. So the question again is, what will your story be? As you look over the mission field of your neighborhood, what is a simple, fun way for you to start neighboring? Maybe, maybe having a party is not for you, as we talked about last week. That's okay. Remember, the goal is not having a party per se. It is creating opportunities for you to get to know and to start enjoy the neighbors that God has put in front of you. This means there are any number of ways to begin neighboring. At background, Jesus had just praised God for hiding the secrets of the kingdom from the wise and the learned. Next, and here, a lawyer, a teacher of the law, asked Jesus a question that revealed the lawyer's profound ignorance about central issues of faith, eternal life, and the basic command to love one's neighbor. The expert in the law, or lawyer, was a man who had made it his business to know and to understand the details of the Jewish law. He had studied the scriptures. He also knew the traditions. The problem is... He didn't put them into practice in this situation. The fact that this man wanted to test Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that he was hostile towards Jesus, but it does seem like he wanted to set Jesus up for a trap, in a way, or to kind of put him in a tough spot. For the legal expert to ask, what, does, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life, meant 
that life in God's kingdom, although he would have not understood it as a spiritual kingdom, is something that he desired. But unfortunately, he had a different way of earning it or inheriting it than what is true to Jesus' teaching. Jesus wants us to know that inheriting eternal life, experiencing eternal life, is about experiencing God's grace and then becoming somebody who extends that grace to other people. One translation has it this way. A lawyer got up and put Jesus on the spot. Teacher, he said, what should I do to inherit the life of the coming age? Jesus responds to the expert in the law with this parable, and the story revolves around a surprising reversal, a theme that is found throughout Luke's gospel. In the parable, Jesus contrasted the unloving actions of the priest and the Levite with the loving actions of a Samaritan, a person who was considered irreligious and a half-breed to the Jews. But by taking care of the wounded traveler, the Samaritan was obeying the central command of God's law to love one's neighbor. While the priest and the Levite, those who were meticulous about observing the law, were in fact breaking it in this situation. The parable is not only a call to help those in need, which it is, it's a warning to not become so self-satisfied in your own religiosity rather than focused on relationships. He may, the expert in the law, may have been attempting to pin down and limit the law's demands or limiting his responsibility in his question. So he pressed Jesus further saying, and who is my neighbor? And this lies the point of the story of the Good Samaritan, for the thing is impossible to do on our own strength. We are so used to thinking of the victim and his rescuer as neighbors that we may forget the fact that these were two historical enemies. Samaritans and Jews did not have dealings with one another because they had become so divided. And yet in the context of the question about who is my neighbor, Jesus says, once upon a time, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and was set upon robbers. They stripped him and beat him and ran off, leaving him half for dead. Both a Pharisee and teacher of the law passed by on the other side, but a traveling Samaritan came to where he was. When he saw him, he was filled with pity. He came over to him, bound up his wounds, and poured oil and wine on them. Which of these, Jesus says, do you think turned out to be a neighbor to the man who was set upon by the robbers? The one, the expert in the law says, and notice he doesn't say Samaritan, but the one who showed him mercy. Well, Jesus said, go and do the same. There's no greater question than the lawgiver asked of what do I do to inherit eternal life? This is a question that many people asked in Jesus' day, and the rabbinical teachers of the law often talked about eternal life. Hillel, one of the most famous rabbinical teachers, said, He who gets into himself the word of the Torah gets himself eternal life, as if we just have to stuff ourselves with Scripture. But what Jesus teaches is eternal life is about a life that awaits us in God's coming kingdom, but also a life we are meant to live out in the here and now. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full, life that is abundant. And Dallas Willard would remind us that we are called to live an eternal kind of life now. So what stands true of the kingdom of God? 
The kingdom that Jesus is king over is meant to be true of in our physical experience and world. And physically speaking, many people may not be clear of what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus. But what Jesus clearly means is that we are to put our faith on the line. We're meant to put our faith into practice. Not just believe in our heads or even have those convictions in our hearts, but live with open hands and ready feet to go and to serve and to help. Often this parable is simply taken in a general moral sense. If you, if you see somebody in a ditch, go and help them. Sometimes we remember that in Jesus' days, Jesus' day, Samaritans and Jews hated each other with a passion. And this expanded a further, expands to a further moral lesson about the wickedness of racial and religious prejudice. But if we're to stand any chance of understanding what Jesus himself meant by it, and what is at stake in the wider conversation with the lawyer, we need to go deeper. Fortunately, this isn't difficult. The hatred between Jews and Samaritans has gone on for hundreds of years and is still reflected tragically in the ongoing tension between Israel and Palestine today. Both sides claim to be the true inheritors of the promises of Abraham and Moses. Both sides, in consequence, regard themselves as the rightful possessors of the land. But the bigger question is how are we are meant to love across our differences? The lawyer's question and Jesus' answer, in fact, don't quite match up, and that's part of the point. The lawyer wants to know who counts as his neighbor. For him, God is the God of Israel, and neighbors are Jewish neighbors. For Jesus, Israel's God is the God of grace for the whole world, and a neighbor is anybody in need. Jesus' telling question at the end isn't... uh, asking who the Samaritan uh, regarded as his neighbor, he asks instead who turned out to be the neighbor of the half-dead Jew lying in the road. In other words, the question isn't so much who is my neighbor out there. The question, or really the answer, is how am I going to serve as a neighbor? We don't look around us thinking, well, that person should be included And so I'm going to serve them, but that person shouldn't, so I'm not going to serve them. No. The question is, do I live with an open posture and a loving attitude towards my neighbors that causes me to go out and to love like Jesus would call us to love? You see, we are to go and do the same. We're to recognize the Samaritan as our neighbor, And if we can't look out and see other people as our neighbors and love them in a neighborly way, the reality is we may be the people who are spiritually dead, not the people in need. What is at stake then and now is a reality that the God of grace has intervened in our own lives. And if we have received that grace and we become grace-filled people, that will compel us to go out and extend God's love and grace and various acts of justice and mercy. You see, no church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. Rather, we are to put our faith into practice and to love like Jesus. What was at stake in this conversation between Jesus and the lawyer was what kind of people the people of Israel were really going to be. 
Were they going to be people that were blessed by God and the people of God received that blessing and simply hold on to it for themselves? Or were they actually blessed as a nation by God, called to be his people, so that they could be a blessing to others? The same question is before us as a church. Are we blessed with the opportunity to gather for worship and enjoy God's presence and favor just for ourselves? Or are we actually blessed to be a blessing to others? Is our worship today meant to lead us out into acts of service? I think it's interesting that it is an expert in the law or a teacher of the law that comes and asks Jesus' questions. We often don't have uh, positive feelings or attitudes towards lawyers in our day either. We think of them often as grabbing for money or, you know, that kind of thing. But a teacher of the law or a lawyer can learn to love just like any one of us can love. One of my favorite lawyers is a guy named Bob Goff. Bob wrote a book named Love Does and another book called Love Everyone Always. I've come to see Bob as the loving lawyer. He eventually has become the honorary counsel to the Republic of Uganda, traveling there often and pursuing justice on behalf of the people of that nation. He founded the organization Love Does. Bob writes in Love Does that we are to get to the do part of our faith. That's because love is never stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep things about itself, doesn't just, just keep thinking about loving or planning to love. Love actually does. We start loving people in action, and we actually find that loving feelings emerge in our lives for those people. The law actually says, do this and live. Grace says, live and do this. In other words, the new life that we are meant to experience is meant to bubble over or spill out into loving actions and attitudes towards other people. You see, we must undergo this same shift in our understanding of the story. It's not so much like the lawyer asking, who is my neighbor? It's about becoming a neighbor. It's about learning to love other people across our differences. It's about being like the Good Samaritan and going into our neighborhoods, coming over to people and binding up wounds, putting them on our own beasts, so to speak, and bringing them into an inn and caring for them, watching over people. To be a neighbor means to put love into action. And the moment you start to act as a neighbor, you become a neighbor. Somebody who is loving and reflecting the care and love of Jesus. And instead of somebody who is passing by, preoccupied with our own lives and our own needs and not living with compassion, we become people filled with the compassion of God, looking out for others in need. In the end, the lawyer had to admit that the Samaritan was the neighbor to the man. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. That is all. Mark the recurrence of the word do in the story. The man said, what shall I do? And Jesus said, do this and you shall live. What the law tells you to do, do it and live. And then when the man tried to evade the issue and justify himself, saying, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus simply said, go and do likewise at the end of his story. In other words, don't just learn the law. Live out the law of loving your neighbor as you love God himself. In that, we experience a new and deeper kind of life. 
To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength means to love people with the entirety of who we are. It's allowing your vertical relationship with God to impact your horizontal relationship with others. And to come to that point of intersection where if we're not loving our neighbors, if we're not horizontally loving others who are around us, we're not going to grow in our love for God. These are the two greatest commandments, and in that, the lawyer had it right. What he had it wrong was not putting that truth into practice, not really loving when it counted, when somebody was in need. To learn to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength is to become a neighbor to other people. To love them beyond the limitations and prejudices that we sometimes carry. To love them beyond uh, simply, uh, you know, kind of keeping up our own rhythms. You see, we can have rhythms in our life, a scheduled life, going to various places and spaces, but we're often about our to-do lists and preoccupied with what has to get done. And in the process, we lose sight of those who need to be loved in and around us. To not have a lawyer attitude or an expert in the law attitude is to say, I'm not just going to learn more about God's love, I'm actually going to live out God's love. Bob Goff would go as far as to say that he stopped going to Bible studies and he started going to Bible doings. Places and spaces where, yes, you studied God's word and learned more about it, but you actually planned and practiced and prayed about the ways you were going to live that out in your life around you. It's significant that the person that Jesus commended in the parable among the priests and the Levite and the Samaritans was the one who was neither a religious leader or a lay associate, but a hated foreigner. Jews viewed Samaritans, again, as half-breeds, both physically and spiritually. But Jesus turns out to make Samaritans heroes in stories, including the woman at the well back in chapter 4 of John's Gospel. You see, anyone can become part of God's story. Anyone can become part of God's family. It just takes receiving the love of God and learning to live that love out with others. We're still trying to teach our children this, aren't we? Sesame Street raises the question, who are the people of your neighborhood? They're the people that you meet when you're walking down the street. They're the people that you meet each day. Fred Rogers tried to do his best over the course of his pastoral and uh, television career. Mr. Rogers would raise the question in song, won't you be, won't you be, won't you be my neighbor? You see, people are looking for others who are willing to be neighborly. And what that means is taking pity or feeling a sympathy for the needs of others. The striking response in the parable is a contrast in the attitude between the priest and the Levite and the the unusual feelings of of sympathy and care that the Samaritan had for somebody who was of a, a different race and hated among other people. But notice what the Samaritan does. He goes, he looks, he sees, as we'll talk about. He brings out disinfectant, oil, and wine, and and bandages the wound and he takes the man to puts the man on his own donkey and takes him in a, to an innkeeper and pays for his expenses out of his own resources. 
Friends, this is where we get the idea of Samaritan's Purse, if you haven't made the connection. An organization that we have partnered with through Operation Christmas Child and through sending groups to go serve those in need. The task of Samaritan's Purse is to give help to people in the direst need. And some of you have taken it upon yourself to provide Operation Christmas Child boxes for those in need. And know that the ones up here are just representative. There's about six or seven boxes of this side over across the way. Not just from our congregation, but from congregations in our community. What these boxes remind us of is this. It's not about who your neighbor is, but becoming a neighbor to someone in need. Even if they live across the country or across the world. One of our points and our vision as a church is that we invite people to love Jesus by giving of ourselves in love for others. In other words, the motive is what matters. Josh was actually speaking to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes group this week and talking about spiritual gifts, just as we had a spiritual gifts workshop this last Sunday. And somebody raised the different the question, said, well, I, I serve people, but that's not really necessarily a part of my faith. And Josh says, what makes a difference is your motive and how you're being empowered to love. You see, if we don't have the motive of love behind our actions, 1 Corinthians 13 would remind us that we become like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if we're not empowered by the God of love who sacrificed himself, for, sacrificed himself for us in Jesus' death on the cross and in his resurrection, I have found that we run out of love. Or we don't love very deeply or fully. We need to have the reservoir of God's love filling us if we're going to love beyond differences and difficulties. And it's as we experience the love of God in worship that then we're we're then led out to serve. Romans 12, 1 through 2 would say, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, it's as we offer a sacrifice of worship to God in our song that we're led out to act out that worship in living sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Our spiritual act of worship is meant to spring forth in not living in the ways of the world or conforming to the patterns or ways of the world but living a different kind of life, a transformed life. When we allow the transforming love of God to penetrate us, then we're led to go out and to live out our worship in acts of love and service. So let's get practical here as we close. In the missional movement and the story of the Good Samaritan, I actually found nine different brief principles I want to illuminate on how we are called to love and carry out God's mission. The first is this. The Samaritan came where the man was. The Samaritan came where the man was. In other words, if we don't go towards where people are, we're not going to be able to build neighboring, loving relationships with them. It all starts with coming to where people are. The second missional principle is he saw him. He simply saw the man lying beside the road. My question is, how many needs around us do we not even see? 
How many needs around us are we blind to because of our own schedule and preoccupation? The third principle is he took pity on him. He had empathy for the man. Sometimes we see needs, we come into contact with needs, we see people in need, but we're not very empathetic or supportive. We think about those people just having got themselves in that own situation or that it's their own dumb luck rather than having empathy or pity for them. Remember that we have been the people beside the side of the road at different times, needing a tire changed or having a specific need. And wouldn't we want somebody to stop for us? Most likely. The fourth principle that expressed in the Good Samaritan is he went to him. He bandaged up the man's wounds. So in four and five, he goes towards him and he bandages up his wounds. So what the question here is, do we go towards people in need or do we run away or sort of skirt around on the other side like the Pharisee or the teacher of the law? Rather, the Good Samaritan went to the man and then attended to him by bandaging up his wounds. Some commentators believe that the Good Samaritan actually tore pieces off of his own clothes to serve as bandages for the man but he used resources that he had to care for him. Six, he put him on his own donkey. That meant the man now had to walk, right? He used his own transportation to transport the man in need to a place of help. Again, the Samaritans using resources that he had to support and care for the man. Seven, he took him to an inn and took care of him. He took him to a space and place and enlisted other people to help. This was beyond his own ability to care for the man fully. And so he enlisted other people. Whether that's driving somebody to the hospital, a doctor's appointment, or other place where they could receive care and concern. There is this process of helping and participating in what God is doing by getting the person to where they can receive help. Eighth. He gave of his own material resources. Notice he gave two coins to the innkeeper and said to take care of the man. And he even said that he will come back and give what's needed uh, later. And that brings up the last point and probably my favorite. The good Samaritan says, upon my return, I will pay for any other debts that this man had. In other words, he planned to return. One of my favorite challenges for us as a church is to be the kind of church that comes back, that doesn't just go and serve in one space or place at one time, but continues to go back into spaces and places to continue to show the love of God to people so that that love is reinforced and renewed on a regular basis. Immediately after the second service today, a small group of us are again going over to the apartment complex across the street, this time to extend invitations to our Santa shop outreach for children and families. If you would like to be a part of that opportunity of extending God's love, I invite you to do so. From this illustration and from this story, we learn a lot of principles that we can apply. We learn that lack of love is often easy to justify, even though it is never right. That our neighbor is anyone, any race, creed, or social background who is in need. And love means acting to meet that person's need. To be a church that continues to love means that we allow the story of the Good Samaritan become a way of life for us. It's not a, simply a way to life, but it is a way of life 
In other words, it's not just that we, we do these things and we receive eternal life. No. Eternal life is given by God in His grace and in His gift that we have to receive. But when we do receive that gift of life and grace, we start to live a different way of life. We start to see other people as our neighbors in need and we move to meet those needs. At one point in Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout, the narrator of the story, and the key character, and Jim, sister and brother, have just been saved from harm thanks to the intervention of Boo Radley, an African-American man who lives an isolated life. In the following scenes, Scout is talking to Boo, whose real name is Arthur, taking him back to his house where he had lived. Neighboring, she said, brings food with death and flowers with sickness and little things in between. Boo was our neighbor. He gave us two soap dolls, a broken watch, a chain, and a pair of good luck pennies and our lives when he protected us. But neighbors, she said, give in return. We never put back into the tree what we took out of it when we take an apple and eat it on our own. But we are called to give back. We are called to be neighbors who give in return. Friends, we're to look out for those opportunities to give in return, to seek out people in need, and to serve them in Jesus, on Jesus' behalf. We need to look for intentional neighboring environments and spaces and places. And there's several ideas in Greg Finke's Joining Jesus in the Neighborhood book, or On Mission book, Some of them I'll mention briefly here. You can have a cookout or ice cream party and invite your neighbors. Have a fire pit for s'mores and invite neighbors over. At work, look for somebody who's regularly overlooked and underestimated and invite them to lunch with you and one or two others. Participate in parties thrown by other neighbors. Go to community festivals, art shows, and city celebrations. Be open to talking to people in those places. Do a food drive or invite your neighbors to join together and somehow make a difference for the community. Like many did yesterday for the big game between Stanford and Cal, invite neighbors or coworkers over to watch the game together and get to know one another that way. If you like to exercise, invite neighbors to regularly walk or bike with you. If you have a hobby or sport, invite others to join you. Look at ways that you can meet needs for kids after school who are bored. Or take regular prayer walks in your neighborhood. We can be neighbors. We can connect with people on a regular basis in the various spaces and places we live our lives. Sometimes it's just simply being out in our front yard or front porch and looking to see who passes by. Sometimes it means just getting out of the car when we stop for coffee or to pick up our kids at a coffee house or a school and walk and talk and get to know people. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Few opportunities have missional potential like walking your dog when you see others are out walking theirs. There's few easier ways to meet people. Be regular at a community pool or center or park. Offer to help neighbors who are in need with a project. Babysit so a young single mother or a young couple can have a date night or some time off. Be a regular at a lunch spot. Care for those who are waiting for you and tip well. Let kids play in Little League soccer or basketball and show up. If you're a grandparent, show up. 
I watched my parents be at Josh's section championship race and after he finished spending time talking to the other parents whose kids had also run. Or bring treats to work. See what happens when people eat together like we're about to today. What we do before and after any one of these exercises or activities is simply this. Embrace the missional gift of prayer. Someone once said, when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. We've highlighted prayer as a central missional activity over the course of this series. But I encourage you to pray for lost people. Pray for neighbors, families, and friends. Some of whom you may interact with at Thanksgiving. Pray and go on praying. But don't just pray. Go. Like the Good Samaritan, look for people in need. Move towards them. Seek to meet those needs beyond your own capabilities and resources and just see what God will do. Amen. Now I'm not afraid to show you my weakness my failures and flaws Lord, you've seen them all you still call me friend God of the mountain is the God of the valley and there's not a place for mercy and grace and find me again